Revelation 21, and we're going to look at the first eight verses. And so let's, let's read these together. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In chapter 21, John wants first to tell you about a new life, and then next week we will look at a new home. But I want us to think about this new life first. When we approach the study of the Revelation, our hearts are naturally turned toward home. Not the home that we make in this world with our loved ones, a home bought with income and built with output, but rather the home that God will make with us. The home that we've been longing for since we took our first breath. The home that is eternal in the heavens. Remember the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, where he said that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We come to this book, whether we have ever studied it or not, knowing that it contains something about home, something about the directions to and description of that place where we will take up permanent residence in the presence of God one day. We're like children waiting for Christmas morning. We long to break through the wrapping paper and get to the gift. Only here the gift of glory lays just beyond our reach, separated by seals to be broken and trumpets to be blasted and bowls to be poured out. Those things haven't happened yet in reality, but they have happened in our study of the book. And so now the gift is before us. It's a gift of new life and a new home, and God is the one who will unwrap the gift and give it to us. Recall what John has already seen recently. In chapter 19 and verse 11, John saw heaven opened, and the one who is called faithful and true, sitting on a white horse coming with the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, possessing a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and a rod of iron with which to rule them, and having a winepress of furious wrath in which to tread them. In chapter 19 and verse 17, John saw an angel calling together the birds that fly to eat the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. For those kings of the earth and their armies who took the mark of the beast were slain by the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth when they gathered against him and his armies at the battle of Armageddon. In chapter 20 and verse 1, John saw an angel possessing a chain 
with which to seize the dragon who is the devil and Satan and throw him in, bound into the bottomless pit where he remained for a thousand years unable to deceive the nations. In chapter 20 and verse 4, John saw the church represented as martyrs ruling with Jesus Christ during the millennium enjoying the fruits of the first resurrection in which all the believing dead are raised to life eternal. And in chapter 20 and verse 11, John saw the earth and the sky flee away and the dead, great and small, standing before the great white throne of God, all unbelievers having been raised in a second resurrection that leads to the second death. And John saw God judge them by what was written in the books about their lives and then when their names were not found in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb, they were judged and thrown into the lake of fire where death and Hades were thrown before them and where the beast and false prophet and dragon had already been thrown. Now John is given another vision, a vision of a new life. He said he saw a new heaven and a new earth. The idea of a new creation is in keeping with the visions of the prophets. God revealed through the prophet Isaiah that he would create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's Isaiah 65 and verse 17. And Isaiah likened the fruitfulness of the remnant of Israel and the preservation of Israel's name after the exile to the surety of God making a new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 66 and verse 22. In his effort to stir up the sincere minds of his congregation, the Apostle Peter picked up on this theme from Isaiah and told his believers that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. Peter then urged the congregation to consider how they ought to live the lives of holiness and godliness as they await the coming of the day of God because that day will bring dissolution and the consumption of the heavens. Unless they should wonder if, they, if the passing away of the old would be followed by the creation of the new, Peter assured his church that they are awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3 and verse 13. As we consider the new heaven and the new earth, two questions arise in these first two verses that center on whether or not we're dealing with something figurative or something literal. Remember that throughout our study of the Revelation, we've dealt with this issue before, that oftentimes John has written symbolically or figuratively about something that's real, but he's used figurative language to tell us about that real thing. So the question comes up here first in verse 1 of chapter 21. Does John intend to say that the first heaven and earth were literally replaced by a new heaven and a new earth? Or is this simply figurative language meant to say that the original heaven and earth were, in the language of verse 5, made new. And then the second question is like unto that, does John in verse 2 of this chapter intend to describe the presence of a literal city called the New Jerusalem that comes out of heaven from God as a new dwelling place for God and his people? Or is this figurative language meant to describe the people of God themselves in which God will make his permanent dwelling? Let's deal with the first question first. Is the new heaven and new earth simply a remade version of the first? 
Or is it literally a new heaven and a new earth? I think it's literally a new heaven and it's literally a new earth. Let me tell you why. Grant Osborne says that if sin had not entered the world, the first creation would have sufficed. But since it was, in the words of Romans 8 and verse 21, in bondage to decay due to sin, it must be replaced. I think that too. I think the effect of the fall of mankind to sin in the garden not only opened the eyes of mankind to his sinfulness and not only led to physical death for mankind and eternal death for those not redeemed by God, but I think it also brought a curse on the world in which we live. The physical earth, Paul says in Romans, is groaning for the revealing of the sons of earth. This world is filled, well, to use John Wesley's phrase, thorns and thistles that we pray when joy comes to the world would no more grow. The world has been subjected to sin, therefore the world must be replaced. Now John uses language here that makes us question if that's actually so. Because in verse 5 he says that God says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so that's why there are those who would argue, maybe it's just a renewal or a remaking or a refurbishment of the first heaven and earth. But notice that John says in verse 1, the reason that a new heaven and a new earth came. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now that word passed away in our usage, what what do we mean by that? If we said something passed away, we mean it died, right? That's right. Uh, Now, you know, that's that's not just right. In in fact, some of the more proper folks among us would hear those words passing away and say, oh, always passing at bridge, you know. They read the newspaper and say, everybody passed away, nobody died. Those words for us, they mean death. So it's important for you to know that's not what it means in the Greek. It doesn't mean pass away. Now, almost every translation I looked at uses the translation passed away. The word is a derivative of the Greek word aperkomai, and it can mean these things. It can mean to come or to go away from, to depart, to return, to arrive, to go after, or to follow. The idea here is not of death, the death of the first earth and the first heaven, but of its decay. The first heaven and the first earth, the world in which we live, will be proved not to last or to endure because of the extent of the curse of sin and the weight of God's judgment. You only have to go back to chapter 16 to know that the world that we live in suffers under the weight of God's wrath. If you were to go back to chapter 16, verses 17 to 21, you read there about the outpouring of the seventh bowl. And what it says there is that when God dispatches that seventh angel to pour out its bowl, this is the fullness of God's wrath. It's the final expression of judgment. This is the end. God's great and dreadful day is in fact coming. He is going to pronounce there, it's done. Words we will hear again in this chapter we see that the effects of the outpouring of that wrath are upon the whole world itself. Remember that John wrote there about earthquakes and lightning and thunder. 
things that were more glorious and grand than the world has ever seen. There would be natural disasters beyond anything we've ever experienced. And he said that the great city Babylon, which remember, that's not just one local city, that's the worldwide opposition to God and the Lamb. He says that the ancient city Babylon, what does it do? It splits into three pieces. That's a reminder to us that this earth, this world in which we live at the last day is going to bear the weight of the judgment of God, not just against mankind, but against this world that has been corrupted due to sin. Yes, sir. We're going to get there. We're gonna get there. So, so I, I will just say at this point, um, when John is saying a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and first earth have passed away, one of the things we should probably understand is that heaven has two meanings in the scriptures. One word, one Greek word, uh, oranos, there's a Hebrew equivalent, but that word can mean the sky, the atmosphere, the firmament. It can also mean the dwelling place of God that is beyond human sight. And, and what I think we have to acknowledge here is that it's not the dwelling place of God that is passing away. It's the earthly firmament. It's, it's the physical sky or heavens that we see now that are going to pass away. And then what's going to happen, my contention, uh, I think what he says here is new heaven and new earth are formed, but they are they are one, and the reason that I think we'll argue that they, they become one, that they're joined together, is because they become symbolized by the new Jerusalem. That becomes the emblem of this, of this new creation of God. But, but I think when he's talking about heaven and earth passing away, he's not talking about the, the eternal spiritual dwelling place of God. He's talking about the heavens that we see. That, that'd be my argument. Yeah. Does that help? Annie. Okay. The atmosphere. The atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Probably to include uh, the solar system, the the universe that we, as we know, ev- everything that God created is going to get recreated. Right. That that Paul. Yeah. Paul gives us these these tears. Yep. That's right. That's right. Let me let me tell you what um, let me tell you what Greg Beale says. I think this is this is further confirmation of this idea. Greg Beale says renewal, the idea that God makes all things new, does not mean that there will be no literal destruction of the old world, the old cosmos. Just as a renewed resurrection body does not exclude a similar destruction of the old. That the new creation follows the pattern of Christ's resurrection is demonstrated by the linguistic link between new creation and resurrection in Isaiah 65 and 2 Corinthians 5 and Colossians 1. So our argument here should be this. At the end of days, God will do a new work that is like his first work. And God's first work was a work of creation. And God's last work will be a work of creation. That even as God makes all things new, that encompasses 
the recreation of the world with the old passing away and a new taking its place. In verse 2, you shouldn't miss that it's not just the heaven and earth that pass away. John also says that the sea was no more. We could delve into this deeply, but I'm going to summarize here, and that is just to say why why is there no sea? Why are we not going out on a boat? Why is there no deep sea fishing? Why, why are we not taking our cast net anymore in glory? Well, it's because of the what the sea represented in the ancient world. In the ancient world, and we've seen this even in the Revelation, remember that in chapter 13, John told us about a beast that came out of the sea. The sea is tempestuous and dark and, and beyond our grasp of understanding, except to be horrified and troubled by it. We live in a modern world with all sorts of technology, and, and we've been able to, to map the depths of the ocean floor in many places and to understand lots of the, the sea life that's out there. But in the first century, in the world where John lived, the sea was beyond the pale. It was something that they couldn't understand. All they knew were the terrifying stories of those who dared to cross on these, these great voyages. And they came back with horror stories if they came back at all. Because the sea was tempestuous, it becomes symbolic of the demonic and the evil of the things that deal with Satan. And so when John says the sea was no more, it's because John, he is trying to help us understand the fullness of God's recreation, of God's making a new heaven and a new earth. And what John wants to underscore here is that in this new place that God creates, for his people and his own permanent dwelling, there is no longer the abode of evil things. There's no longer a place for those things that are against God. And so we represent that by saying there's no more sea. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't think that's beyond, I don't know if we know that, but I don't think that's beyond the reach. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think, Farrell, that, that goes to the, that goes to the idea of, of, as John writes about this new dwelling place where God's people are going to be, he's going to talk about the new Jerusalem, and we're going to really deal with that next week, because that's the rest of the chapter but one of the things there is he, he's describing a real city, right? He's, he's telling us about the measurement of this city. He's telling us about its construction. He's telling us about its uh, security, right? He says that the gates are always open because there's no threat, right? He tells us that the nations bring their glory into this place. So in, in one sense, when God says that, that a new heaven, or excuse me, a new Jerusalem comes out of heaven uh, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, uh, and, and when we come to understand that this is a place where God's people live as well as a representation of God's people, I think on the one hand we should see all God's people are going to be together for all time. I don't, right, like you're saying, no separations. It's, we don't have oceans between us. We don't have you know, national barriers anymore. We don't have borders, right? It's, open, it's an open border world. That's not a political statement, by the way. Um, I wouldn't carry that so far, and, and the only reason is because I can't, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty convinced of the idea that just like God is making all things new and we get a new heaven and a new earth, 
I think we're going to get new work to do. I don't think we're just hanging out in the New Jerusalem for all eternity. I think God is going to give us a new commission like he gave to Adam, that first commission. And if that's the case, will we all be sitting up on top of each other for all of eternity? No, because we're all going to have assignments. I can't prove that. That's just what I think. Uh, but I think, I think that's good. I think saying no division, I think, that, I think that's in keeping. That's a good thought. Yeah. So, a literal new heaven and a literal new earth. Well, what about a literal Jerusalem? Is he, is he talking about a real city or is this just a way of talking about God's people? Let's think about that. Look at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John's giving us another vision, another vision of this new life. He sees a new heaven and a new earth, and that is in keeping with the idea of a new creation, which was the vision of the prophets. Well, now he goes back to the prophets, and he carries their vision forward. We heard Isaiah talk about this promise of a new Jerusalem, of a new heaven. Isaiah went on there in chapter 65 to talk about this new heaven as a place, this new heaven and new earth, as a place where God uh, was going to be at work again in the life of his people. The New Testament writers, they, they thought about this place where God's people would dwell. And they likened it to the place where God dwelled even during their time. See, there's no doubt that God's people considered there to exist now, here, right now, in this life, and in the future, a heavenly Jerusalem, which they considered to be the home of the saints and of God himself. Paul wrote about that in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, where he said that Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's a way of saying she's the place where we live. This is it's our home. He talked to the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21, and he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The writer to the Hebrews thought about this heavenly dwelling place of God. And he said this in chapter 11 and verse 10, talking about Abraham. And he wrote that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The same writer said in chapter 12 that the saints have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13 and verse 14, he wrote of the pilgrim journey of God's people by saying, here on this earth, we have no last city, but we seek the city that is to come. All of these passages remind us simply that here and now on this earth, we are not at home. We're not fully alive yet either. We're waiting on new life and a new home. Between earth and eternity, there is in the heavens a place where God dwells and where the souls of his saints are at rest while they await the resurrection from the dead. And of course, from the very recreative work of God himself will come a new heaven and a new earth. And from his presence in heaven will come a new city, all new realities, and yet also all symbols of the place where God dwells and the place where his saints 
made new in the resurrection, will dwell with him. So Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3 in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Jesus there seems to understand that in one sense, the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, is a way of talking about God's people themselves. Much like we talked about Babylon the Great being a way to refer to the unbelieving world, the people of earth. And yet, I think there's a way to hold that in balance with the fact that this is a literal city, a real place that God will create for his saints to dwell in with him. So let me tell you once again what Grant Osborne says. He says there's a debate about the connection between the city and the saints. Is the New Jerusalem the place in which the saints reside, or is it a symbol of the saints themselves? He says while it's possible that John transformed the Jewish tradition of an end-time New Jerusalem into a symbol of the people themselves. The text doesn't require that. He reminds us that Babylon was both a people and a place, and that it is better to answer here that the New Jerusalem is both a people and a place. It's a people in chapter 21, verses 9 to 10, when the angel shows John the New Jerusalem as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in chapter 21, verses 13 and 14, when the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles are the gates and the foundations of this city. But it's a place in chapter 21 and verse 3. A place where God dwells with his people. And in chapter 21, verses 7 to 8, a place where the readers either inherit citizenship there or face the lake of fire. And it's a place in chapter 21, verses 24 and 26, where the glory of the nations are brought into it. In short, Osborne says, it represents heaven as both the saints who inhabit it and their dwelling place. So all that to say, what are we arguing for? A true, literal, real new heaven. A true, literal, real new earth. And a true, literal, real new Jerusalem. No, it don't matter to me as long as Jesus is there. I don't care if it's old or new or what. Amen. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, God told his people, he told his people why they were of benefit, why they knew his favor when he rescued them by grace out of the land of slavery in Egypt. He said there, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. In Isaiah chapter 65, the same passage that envisions the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, God says through the prophet, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. These promises of God to dwell with his people in joy are in the background as John hears a declaration that legitimizes the vision he has already seen. 
Because John says in chapter 21 in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let me show you three promises that I see in those verses. And the first one is this. God promises the comfort of his presence. He promises the comfort of his presence. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. That word dwell, it's the word for for tabernacle or tent. It's the idea of God pitching his tent in the midst of his people. God is going to make real to them for all time what was long held as the symbol of his presence. Recall that in the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to instruct the people to create a tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling that was the symbol of his manifest presence. And then God took that symbol of his presence and he filled it with his glory. God did the same thing with the temple. He called Solomon to construct this temple And then Solomon sought the heart of God and prayed for the filling of God's Spirit in this place. And God filled the temple with His presence. It was both the symbol and the reality of His presence. And then something changed, didn't it, when we came into the New Testament? The veil was torn upon the death of our Savior. And all of a sudden, what was long just a symbol a removed reality becomes a felt presence for the people of God. Because now the people of God putting their faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, know His manifest presence in their lives by the filling of the Spirit. Is that not what we see in Acts chapter 1 in the day of Pentecost when they are praying, seeking, hoping for God to come and fill them. And then in Acts chapter 2, this filling is finally come as the Spirit descends into the life of His church. And continually as the gospel goes forward and people are converted, the Spirit comes so that God's people know His manifest presence. And that same presence is what you know in your walk of faith. And it's what I know in my walk of faith. Not because we deserve to know God's presence, but because he's graced us. He's taken our hard hearts and he's made them new. He's taken our blinded eyes and he's caused us to see. And he's taken the dullness of our ears and he's allowed us to hear the voice of the good shepherd. And not one of us, not one of us would have called upon him, John 6 says, except that he drew us to him. There is this wondrous occasion in the life of every Christian When by grace through faith we come to be filled with the Spirit of God himself. And the Bible teaches us that that is a deposit. It's a guarantee. It's a ceiling. It is, to borrow a phrase, a foretaste of glory divine. It's just a touch of what will be reality. Us dwelling with God forever. So what John promises us here 
is that we will know the comfort of God's presence. I want to point one thing to you. And this is, this is interesting. I did not know this until today in studying this again. Scripture says that he will dwell with them and they will be his people. Does anybody have where it says he will dwell with them and they will be his people? Does anybody have the plural of the word people there? Anybody? I think most of us will have it as in the singular. Just make a note. In the Greek, that's plural. It's peoples, plural. And the reason that matters is because here again is a reminder of the grand vision of God that God is redeeming for himself a people of every nation and tribe and tongue. All peoples are going to be a part of his presence. It's an interesting thing. So God promises first the comfort of his presence. And then number two, God promises the consolation of his people. He promises the consolation of his people. He says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. I can't help but think about the coming of our Savior. And you remember there in Luke chapter 2, there are these wonderful stories about these two saints of God. There's a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And they were both waiting for the same thing, the consolation of Israel. They were looking for God to come and redeem his people, to comfort his own, to take away their dread and their sorrow and their pain and their death and to give them fullness of life in him. And Anna and Simeon both got to see just a little piece of that consolation become a reality when Jesus came into the world. And God promises that at the end of the days, he will finally bring real consolation to his people. Real comfort, real care, real concern. God will step in and wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know... I bet you've gone through some hard days in your life. If we live long enough, we all go through hard days. There are times when the things of this world are just too great for the heart to take. And up until that last day, God expresses his consolation through conservation. Did you know that? God has been and is expressing his consolation through conservation. And what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean this. Right now, God takes big bottles and he puts them beneath your eyes and he catches every tear. Until the world's made new, that's the best he does. There will be a day when God says, don't need any more bottles. Because there won't be any more tears. It's all gone. A world set to right, a world recreated, a world made new, is a world where the brokenness of the heart is mended. And where the sting of death is stamped out. And it is a world where all the tears are dried. Not just, but, not just for a moment, but for forever.
He promises the comfort of his presence and the consolation of his people. And then he says he promises the conquering of his purpose. Look there at the end of verse 4. He says he does all this. He'll wipe away their tears. Death will be no more. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Why? The former things have passed away. See, the whole story of creation is the story of God's purposeful action. God created the world to radiate and reflect his own glory. And then God has been on mission because of mankind's rebellion to make this world new. To first bring about redemption for our forgiveness, for our justification, for our new creation. And then to take what he does in each of us individually and do it for the whole world in stamping out evil and the forces of evil and in bringing about a new world and a new creation. God promises when he declares that the former things have passed away that his purpose will prevail. It will conquer. Sometimes we wonder that. Sometimes we may wonder, is God going to be victorious? Sometimes in the midst of a long study of the Revelation, when we wonder about about rapture and second coming and dispensations and millenniums and tribulations and and all these symbols and signs that we've slogged through, we may wonder, what is all of this telling us? It's all telling us Jesus is going to win. His purposes will prevail. It is that same declaration that was made in chapter 11 and verse 15. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And so we're brought to this reality. It says in verse 5 that he who was seated on the throne, that's God, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexual immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Behold, I'm making all things new, God says. Nothing, nothing escapes his recreative power. There's nothing old that'll be around in that new world. There's nothing that doesn't get touched, nothing that doesn't get refabricated, nothing that doesn't get recreated. God is going to do a completely new work. And God tells us once again, as he has told us back in chapter 16, that it is done. That is his work, his work of redemption, his work of renewal, his work of salvation, his work of recreation. It's done He reminds us of his person when he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. You know those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so it's his way of saying, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the A to Z, as we would say in our world. He reminds us here of a wonderful invitation that Isaiah first made when he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember that Isaiah made that offer. 
Isaiah said, if you're thirsty, come and drink. You come and buy milk for no price. Come and Come and be satisfied. It was an invitation to a new life, to a new, a new existence, to a new relationship with God and in God. Isaiah tells us the positive version of that, that wonderful invitation. Jeremiah tells us the negative version, an indictment. You might recall in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, God tells his people through the prophet Jeremiah that they have committed two evils. He says that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for, for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I'm not a country boy. I never have claimed to be. That word cistern is not something I'm familiar with because, well, in the city you just turn on the tap and it comes out. But you all know what a cistern is, don't you? It's a place to collect water. It's a place to collect the rain. And God says to his people, I have this against you. You have taken and turned your back on clear springs of living water. And instead, you've tried to collect the old rain. And you've done it in a bucket with a hole in it. Jesus said in John chapter 4 to a woman, at the well. If you knew who I was, you would take from me living water and never thirst again. And at the end of days, God says all those who dwell in his city are the ones who took Jesus up on his offer. They're the ones who've drunk from the streams of living water. They're the ones who forsook their broken cisterns, who said, God, I tried to solve this on my own and I was a failure. Instead, I come to you and I trust you by faith. It's interesting that in chapter 21 and verse 8, John tells us about all the people that don't get to live in that city. And the reason I say it's interesting is because I don't know about you, but I'm in that list. You know what the difference is? That's what I was and not who I am. We've been made new. We have a new identity. That matters. It matters for us as the people of God to be clear about our sin and about our salvation. We would never presume to say that we are not sinful. We would never presume to say this is the list of the real pagans, the people God really hates, the sinners who really deserve the fires of hell. I'm not a part of that list. Oh, yes, yes, you are, and yes, I am. The difference is that that is no longer our identity. Because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things are become new. John tells us, when it's all said and done, there's a new life and a new home 
awaiting us in the very presence of God. Father, I thank you that by the salvation that you have won and accomplished through the work of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, there is new life and there is a new home. These are not, these are not hopes without foundation. They are realities and promises that will come to pass. We may wonder about this book. We may struggle sometimes to put all the pieces together and to try to understand how it's going to play out. I just pray, Father, that even as we seek to faithfully understand your word, you would help us to rest in the reality that you will make all things new at the end of days and that whether, God, these things come through a pre-mill or post-mill or a-mill reality or, or even, Father, if we've missed it altogether and there is some key to this that we have not understood, I pray that we would take the things that are abundantly clear to heart, that there is a real condemnation for those who are outside of Christ and a real consolation for those who are in Christ. And by faith, that consolation can be ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.